Hi, my friends. I do this work with all my heart for you. So please contribute generously to Future Primitive. Hi, my friends who listen to Future Primitive. I am speaking today with Stephen Gray. Stephen Gray has just uh, published a book called Cannabis and Spirituality. It's called An Explorer's Guide to an Ancient Plant Spirit Ally. Stephen Gray is a teacher and writer on spiritual subjects and sacramental medicines. He has worked extensively with Tibetan Buddhism, the Native American Church, and with entheogenic medicines. The author of Returning to Sacred World, a Spiritual Toolkit for the Emerging Reality, He is also a conference and workshop organizer, leader, and speaker, as well as a part-time photographer and music composer under the artist's name Kiri. He lives in Vancouver, British Columbia. Welcome, Stephen. Oh, yeah, thank you, Joanna. Uh, Lovely to talk with you again. Thank you. So... My first question, of course, will be what inspired you and what is your purpose for writing this book, Cannabis and Spirituality? Uh, sure, I like that question, actually, because um, uh, I don't know, you know where the seed originally came from as a tiny little seed, but at some point, in, uh, this is now four or five years ago, it dawned on me that Cannabis. I mean, I've been involved, interested in, and involved with, uh, you know, numerous of the other entheogens, as you read in your little bio there, and also been a, a lover of the cannabis plant for a long time. And uh, somewhere around four or five years ago, it it dawned on me that while cannabis was becoming uh, much more uh, known and used and talked about and legalized in the cultures. There was one aspect of it, uh, of its use, of its benefits, that wasn't really being talked about and wasn't really being practiced much by the great majority of people, and that is uh, its use as a spiritual medicine or a spiritual ally. And this despite the fact that there is an ancient and widespread history of just such use on this planet. Um, Cannabis has been with humanity from the beginning, essentially, and although the records are uh, skimpy when you get past the Neolithic, um, uh, it, the likelihood is it's been used, as, along with all those other many uses that the plant has, it's quite likely that it was used uh, here and there, at least, um, as a spiritual medicine, say, in ancient China, for example. What we do know is that, um, uh, you know, apart from written records, we have uh, archaeological records 
that go back uh, 7,500 years ago to the Neolithic era of um, uh, findings of like grave sites of the shamans, and obviously they can tell you know that that was the shaman for the village, and the shaman would be buried with uh, you know cannabis smoking paraphernalia and seeds and things like that. So it has an ancient history on this planet. And excuse me. And uh, I think most people would agree that that aspect of its use has not been well understood or practiced uh, in modern times. Certainly in the West, although you know sadhus in India and other places, Rastafarians are using uh, have been uh, using cannabis spiritually. And it felt to me like that needed to be uh, addressed or redressed, you might say. And uh, just to spin it into a sort of a continuing long story, uh, a little bit more I'd like to add, uh, just personally because I find it kind of fascinating, is that um, it just felt like the pieces kind of fell in place in the right way. I I was Kathleen Harrison. Mm -hmm. Um, I also co-organized this conference up here, Spirit Plant Medicine Conference, and I spent a day with Kathleen after the conference uh, four years ago, actually, in 2012, and she, and I somehow mentioned this idea to her. I said that I, I wanted to address it, but I didn't think that I had a, a whole book of what I would say about that in me, and she said to me, that would be a really important book, and I would contribute to it. And that was the trigger right there, uh, because Kathleen, I have immense respect for. I don't know. Do you, do you know who she is, Joanna? Uh, yes, I know her, but I would love it if you would tell our listeners. Yes. Well, uh, one identifier for a number of people, I don't like to say this too often because it sort of almost makes her seem like Adam's rib or something, but she she was married to Terrence McKenna for about 15 years um, in the 70s and 80s, so um, that's one connection. But uh, she is a uh, um, internationally known ethnobotanist, speaker, teacher, writer. Um, she is actually, and I'm not exaggerating in saying this, Kathleen Harrison is uh, one of the planet's leading um, representative spokespeople, proponents for the protection, uh, prop, propagate, prop, propagation, is that the right word? Yeah. <laughs> um, um, of uh, of um, medicine plants, sacred medicine plants. Um, she has an organization called botanicaldimensions.org, um, which is a nonprofit organization to support that. And if anyone is listening to this, uh, I would strongly encourage people to support that with donations because they never have enough money and they're doing fantastic work. Well, it's her thing. Yes. Um, but anyway, um, and she's also a lovely writer. She's never had time to write a book, but if she ever does, it'll be dynamite. She's written essays uh, in other books, and she, she's a beautiful writer, but not just because she's not just in the sort of, um, I don't know, what would you call it, literal sense, but because she, her soul comes through in her writing. Um, uh, and there's this sensitivity and tenderness and deep understanding that comes through. So when she said she would write uh, a chapter for the book, that was it. And I ended up collecting 16 other contributors, and I've written three or four chapters myself on the more prosaic kind of aspects, like, you know, um, some suggested practices, things like that, um, some discussion on dosages, dosages and strains and that sort of thing. So it's interesting to me that um, Kathleen Harrison, who incidentally is um, 
is a, a, a living example of the dignity of plants, whether they're medicinal plants or any botanical plant. This is a human being who is an example of the dignity of, uh, of the plant world. It's interesting that she calls the cannabis plant a she. Could you elaborate mm. on that? Yeah, well, um, yeah, her, her, the title of her chapter in the book is Who Is She? Um, and, um, uh, well, I'm not 100% sure I can fully accurately speak for her on that, but uh, as I understand it, there are two interwoven reasons for that. Um, uh, one is simply that uh, indigenous people that she has known um, have called, uh, referred to it as a she, um, um, and the more kind of perhaps what would you say um, kind of logical maybe reason why you might think of cannabis as a as a, a feminine uh, presence is because um, well actually there's a, a lovely little um, bit uh, if I if I can find it without making you wait um, uh, I don't I don't know if I can do that but uh, Julie Holland uh, wrote the uh, foreword for the book and. Uh, uh, regardless of whether I can find that or not, um, the point is that um, our culture, I think, arguably, is too yang-oriented. If you take this yin and yang kind of, you know, yes, dichotomy yes. or continuum, and um, uh, cannabis uh, might be considered uh, a yin influence, um, and that may or may not be um, what would you call it a universal eternal kind of principle, but perhaps because our cultures, modern cultures, have tended to be um, too yangy, you know, and not enough yin not mm-hmm. enough uh, receptivity, you know. Um, uh, if Julie Holland just talked about it as, you know, we need to open up that receptivity in ourselves, mm-hmm. right? And I think uh, Kathleen speaks about it in a similar kind of a way. Julie Holland says that... Yes. Um, pot is basic information from nature. Yes. So that would be interesting to elaborate on if if uh, yes. if cannabis is directly conveying information from nature, um, mm-hmm. and, and nature is a she, Gaia, etc. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, again, I'm, I, I wouldn't claim to be, you know, any kind of ultimate authority on that point, but um, I think it's the the nurturing, uh, receptive, uh, uh, gentle kind of quality that is, you know, uh, out of balance and lacking in uh, the majority of people and just in the cultural kind of um, zeitgeist altogether, you know, these days, you know. So uh, one, you know, one answer to that or one... um, anecdote about that which I've always enjoyed is that um, the uh, um, you know in in South America uh, they uh, like Brazil it's often uh, the plant is often referred to as Santa Maria Mm -hmm. which of course translates in English into Saint Mary and uh, if I'm not mistaken the original reason for that label or that name uh, came about because there was a man 
who had a, a religious community using ayahuasca in the jungle mm-hmm. of Brazil, and uh, they didn't have cannabis, but uh, they started to get known outside, and um, these kind of hippies were coming in the 70s, and one young man showed up uh, with some cannabis, and he felt a little embarrassed about having it there at this religious community using ayahuasca, so he spoke to this leader, I'm I'm deliberately not using his name because the people within his community don't really like to have his name bandied about all that much in this regard. Um, But anyway, so uh, this young man said, I I have this stuff, I don't know what to do with it. And the leader uh, had not used it before, apparently. So he said, well, give it to me and I'll check it out for myself. And so the story is that uh, he did that. And he had a couple, a couple of different visions, um, and uh, one of them was he saw a woman in a garden, and she spoke to him, and she said, this is my garden, and that plant that you smoked, that's my plant. It's from my sacred garden. Mm-hmm. And so he, because his um, community was um, what you would call a syncretic uh, religion that had mm-hmm. uh, used uh, Christian language and so on, mm-hmm. He identified her as uh, the Virgin Mary or Mother Mary, which he mm-hmm. also said was uh, Mother Earth, and also uh, in South American kind of language or whatever, Pachamama. And and then she apparently said to him, um, if you want to take this on as a responsibility, um, your job would be to reclaim this plant from, well, the way he said it was from the devil, the way I prefer to say it is from sort of misuse and misunderstanding, and return it to its proper mistress, um, i.e., uh, Mother Mary, Mother Earth, or whatever. Um, so there's that there's that kind of um, gentle quality about that, you know, that tenderness, that open heart quality about mm. about all that. So I guess that's why, yeah. The, yeah, that's why the female side, yes, you know, aspect yes. of it. Yeah. Beautiful, beautiful. So, as an addendum, perhaps you would uh, quickly tell us uh, why this uh, there's been a common name marijuana, which interestingly I don't see the young people using. Oh, but yeah, yeah. well. Uh, yeah. Well, yeah, in my book, I make a brief reference to that. I don't particularly like the word. Um, uh, and I'm not sure if I know everything about its etymology, its histor- historical roots. Um, but as far as I can determine, um, it goes back to roughly the, you know, sometime in the, maybe the middle of the 19th century. But the way it was used in the 20th century was quite negative. Um, um, uh, interestingly enough, in English, that would be Mary Jane, which isn't all that different from St. Mary in a way. However, that aside, it, it, it had negative connotations, uh, like in the 1930s in particular in the United States. Uh, there was a very, very nasty man named Harry J. Anslinger. Uh-huh. He was the first head of the Federal Bureau of Narcotics, which I think later became the DEA. Um, and he was he was just a piece of work, really. And he was on a campaign to um, just uh, demonize the plant altogether. And he he popularized this word marijuana, and that word was used a lot to describe the plant during that period in the 1930s. It seems to have um, racist overtones. Um, 
aspect of it as well. Um, so I don't really like the word. Whereas uh, cannabis um, has uh, uh, etymologically goes back at least a couple of thousand years. Um, uh, the, the, a word ver- spelled very much like it uh, exists in ancient Greek, and then there's a word cannabosum from uh, the Middle East, perhaps a Greek word as well, I forget. Uh, Chris Bennett is a is a um, an, an expert on those kind of things, and he has a chapter in the book as well. But yes, the, the, the word itself, cannabis, has an ancient history, so... For me, that's the most honorable word to use, although I don't mind if somebody says pot or weed or whatever. Would you speak to us about the ways in which you have learned and experienced that this this plant, a relationship with this plant can enhance the spiritual paths or many spiritual paths? Yes, uh, I can uh, make an attempt at that. Uh, first of all, I want to say that uh, you know people use the plant many different ways, of course, and I have no judgment against that as long as it's an overall positive factor in your life, and that's for each individual to decide for themselves. It can be used to ultimately create more harm than good um, if you use it to escape for you know from your responsibilities and so on, and that comes to the core of how it functions as a spiritual ally. Um, At least the way I like to think of it anyway is um, that it's uh, other entheogens like psilocybin mushrooms and peyote and these other ones, these other entheogens are often referred to as nonspecific or unspecific amplifiers. Uh Um, And I believe cannabis is also... specific amplifier in that sense. So it heightens experience, and it does this, uh, you know, biochemically as well. Uh, Joan Bellow, the author of The Benefits of Marijuana, there's a lovely little book, by the way, uh, has a chapter in the book called uh, Marijuana. <laughs> she likes the word marijuana. Yeah. Um, for her, for her it's, a, it's a rebellion kind of a thing. Um, um, but anyway, uh, her chapter is called Marijuana and the Body-Mind. And she talks about how cannabis actually works pharmacokinetically or biochemically in the body. It opens up the flow of blood uh, to all the extremities, loosens uh, the skeletal muscles, allows for deeper, slower breathing. Um, It's also been referred to as a vasodilator. It allows more blood to flow into the brain as well, Um, hence the stimulation of creative thinking oftentimes and so on. So... If you accept this notion that cannabis is a, a non-specific amplifier, then the key thing is, how do you channel that energy? What do you do with it, right? So, I mean, you can do essentially nothing with it, like just hang out with your friends or whatever, or you can listen to music, you know, whatever. You can do all these different things with it, and if you channel it, that can be a positive thing. Um, if you know what you're doing, if there's some discipline, if there's some intention there, so from my point of view, and I'm a little biased, I think I might be a little biased this way uh, in terms of what I'm about to say, because uh, I've been uh, a meditator. Uh, I don't meditate that much anymore. I just try to catch myself uh, as I go through the day more now. But I was involved with Tibetan Buddhism for many years and did a lot of meditating, went to retreats and that sort of thing. And so 
always been, I've always uh, felt it's really important for, um, how am I, I going to put this? The most difficult thing for human beings to do is to get out of our heads, mm-hmm. to allow the thoughts to dissolve and um, the thinking mind to take a break for a while and just enter into inner stillness. You know, that's almost the core teaching of Buddhism and other wisdom traditions, that reality appears, as it were, um, or manifests, uh, unconditioned reality manifests in the space where we get out of our own way. Okay? So if you can channel this amplified energy, it's like a heightened meditation. If you can allow, even though the plant will want to oftentimes stimulate, you know, these what might seem to be fascinating ideas or fascination with any number of things in the external world, if you can sort of sit down, shut up, and pay attention, as Terence McKenna said about working with the mushrooms and so on, if you can just sit down, shut up, and pay attention, if you can allow your thoughts to uh, some gap in that thinking mind, then that amplification process can really deepen your experience of the present moment, the nowness that people talk about, you know, the power of now that Eckhart Tolle's book is called, for example, um, can open uh, open you up physically and mentally, or I guess you could say spiritually at the same time. can open up the heart, can uh, deepen your experience of being peacefully in the moment. And that, I think, is very valuable to be able to do that. And it's not, I think it's important to clarify that you can't do that all the time with cannabis. At least I don't think you can. Um, And in fact, that's one of the themes in the book, is that a number of the contributors to the book have said that um, for deepening your experience, it's best not to do it all the time. Like, if you do it too often, if you're doing that daily, then uh, there's a kind of tolerance or familiarity, well, tolerance and familiarity mm-hmm. effect. Uh, one of the contributors to the book is an ayahuasca shaman from Brazil named Mariano da Silva. And he said that he, in his experience, uh, cannabis, or he calls it Santa Maria, but anyway, um, can be transcendental. Um, but he said, if I do it every day, I lose that kind of effect completely. Okay? So as much as anything, and Joan, Bo- Joan Bellow speaks of this as well in her chapter, it's not even so much about having an experience. And I guess you could say that about you know, any religious experience or spiritual or mystical experience altogether. It's great if you have an experience. Uh, I think it was the famous uh, religious scholar, Houston Smith, that said uh, about the psychedelics in general, that it's clear that they can in- induce religious experiences. It's less clear that they can result in a religious life. Hmm. Um, and so it's not necessarily wonderful as it can be if you open up to the plant, if you sit still with it a bit, and just let it you know, um, do its work un- unobstructed. It's really, and again, Joan Bellow speaks about this in the book, it's really the long term. We're talking about a kind of a reconfiguration or retraining almost of how to just be present, you know, trust our bodies, trust the intelligence of our bodies, of our hearts, of our connection to the earth, of our presence in 
the uh, the question I have here is that uh, it is well described in the book how uh, one can experience a widening of uh, of consciousness, a widening of awareness. Uh, I like to say life is short, but it's wide. But how to surrender? Because uh, there is some, there, there can be paranoia when one's reality is uh, becomes bigger, and how mm-hmm. to surrender? Well, I don't know. It's just discipline, really. You know, it's just paying attention. You know, uh-huh. the sit down, shut up, and pay attention idea. You know, mm-hmm. I mean, you can channel it. Uh, you know, the, okay, so the just sort of being still with it. And it doesn't necessarily mean actually physically staying in one place. You can have quite a lot of that inner stillness in simple activity, uh, even walking in the woods, for example. You know, if you don't have to think a lot about what you're doing and where you're going and all that kind of thing, uh, you can tap, tap into that. that in, the inner stillness is, is, is the real issue. Um, the reason that Traditions like uh, Tibetan Buddhism or Buddhism in general ha- uh, encourage silent sitting meditation is because there are no distractions when you do that. That's the, that's the clearest way to sit down and relate with your own mind. So in terms of how to surrender uh, in that regard, you, um, you just try to be as present as possible for everything that arises and again, in the sort of Buddhist way of talking about it, you don't judge anything that comes up in your mind. But if you want to practice going into this sort of deeper into the moment, you also don't run with a particular thought. Like in the basic, simple, follow your breath kind of meditation practice, um, with or without cannabis, a thought comes up. And you just look at it. And it could be an emotionally laden thought. It could be, you know... Uh, you know, any range of emotions associated with the thought, um, uh, it comes up, you just look at it as, a, as if you're looking at a movie, so to speak, and you release it. Um, and then if you have to do that, you know, if it's the famous mystical poet Rumi said, you, know, you break your vow a thousand times, just keep coming back, keep coming back, you know. So if your vow is to be present and you go off, you know, in the, in the, in the meditation technique, they, they say it doesn't matter how many times you go off into your head into thinking about the future, the past, the present, whatever. So you're thinking you're not really completely there, but you don't recognize it when you, when you leave the present, so to speak. It's almost like when you're falling asleep. If you've ever tried to you know, track the moment when you actually go from being awake to being asleep, you can't. You're there and then you're gone, right? It's actually very similar so you don't catch yourself going off into your thoughts, but when you re- realize that you've been in your head, you know whether it's ten seconds or ten minutes, you just recognize that and come back to being present um, without judgment. You know, it's a good or bad or whatever. Just oh, I was gone. Now I'm back. Right. So then you're connecting with your body, and the more that we can do that, the more that we can be present fully. Um, with our breath, with our bodies, with the earth that we're standing or sitting or walking or dancing on, the more our intelligence increases, our innate intelligence, our, our intuitive intelligence, our heart-connected intelligence, you know. Um, so 
it's just practice, you know. It's just practice. practice. Joan Bello talks about in the book that, you know, you're not going to get this right away necessarily. It's not like you're suddenly going to smoke a little weed and sit down try to meditate and all of a sudden you're going to be enlightened or something. It's an accumulated practice of kind of retraining the mind or the, the, uh, the way that we relate with the world around us by learning to be present, learning to relax. You know, that's to, if you could break all spiritual teaching down to one word, it would probably be relax. <laughs> you know, like when we relax, everything functions better. And, and as a somewhat side note to the intention of the book, I also believe, as a non-scientist, that that's, um, that's a good part of the reason that cannabis has these medicinal benefits, is that um, it allows the blood to flow more freely. It, it uh, loosens up uh, the muscular uh, you know, systems that are tightening things, you know, um, and so... That in itself, relaxing, breathing, allowing energy to move through our bodies less obstructed, is in itself healing, um, uh, both physically and emotionally, spiritually, mentally. That's the general idea, I think. So there's a question I wanted to ask you because sometimes I've noticed that uh, Mm -hmm. people become self-absorbed and... Mm -hmm emotionally unavailable I mean I have a friend who's very very warm and then sometimes he will uh, he will smoke or vaporize and uh, and seems to be much less of a feeling person mm. well it does take the edge off things for a lot of people um, but yes it's a good point actually um, and I think Again, it comes back to what your intention is and how you're using the plant, you know, um, and, uh, you know, how much you're not in your head. Uh, I, I, I don't really, well, I don't know. I don't want to, uh, hesitant to say this because I don't want to draw too tight a line around it. But personally, I don't really use it in a social way, like with other people particularly, unless there's a, a focus, you know, Um like I do get together with a friend and we play music, uh, sing and play guitar together, and we use cannabis for that because it helps deepen things. Um, uh, it, it's a little bit uh, tricky that way, you know, in terms of the emotions. Sometimes it will, it's kind of like, it's you know, it makes things okay. So if, you, you know, certain kinds of emotions um, uh, sort of relax or dissolve, and, um, you know, that's it's hard to say, you know, what that is exactly, but um, I, I know what I, I know what you're talking about there, um, and mm-hmm. I think again, you know, the purpose of the book is to promote the potential benefit of using cannabis as a spiritual ally, and I'm, so meaning, for the most part, actually using it with with some discipline, with some practice, like sitting down to meditate, doing yoga. Um, one of the contributors to the book is D. Duso, who. She's got to have a book coming out, uh, a whole book um, herself soon on this theme. She um, leads uh, these uh, workshops and so on, or um, sessions in the Bay Area, uh, San Francisco area, um, called Ganja Yoga. And uh, it's the same thing. It's this uh, amplification function that can take you deeper uh, into the space, you know, and 
cannabis because, again, it's not cerebral, you know, you, um, I mean, ideally, of course, you know, I mean, people go into their heads and so on, but, you know, once you know the, the asanas, the postures, once you know how to do them, uh, you, you don't have to be thinking about them. You just do them, you know. Um, and, uh, of course, yoga has a lot to do with how you work with your breath. And I meant to mention that uh, in regard to your question about surrender, how you surrender to this uh, practice or medicine. Um, paying attention to the breath uh, is is a huge part of it. Uh, just we think of, uh, uh, I, I like the phrase, uh, you know, this breath of life, you know. Mm-hmm. Breath is life for us. Um, and uh, if we if we're present, uh, you know, without being self-absorbed about it, like so. So actually, yes. Okay. So breath. I just I'm trying to get too many ideas all in at once here. Um, uh, breath is really important because breath releases breath, uh, letting breath go, and allowing breath to go deeply into the body uh, is part of this healing process that carries the amplified energy throughout the organism, um, uh, and it's not. A self-absorbed practice, you know. There, there used to be this kind of um, sort of terrible misunderstanding about meditation in the culture, you know, say 30, 40, 50 years ago, that meditation was about navel-gazing, some kind of, you know, self-absorbed practice, whereas in fact it's actually the opposite. It's getting out of yourself. It's getting out of your head and being there, here, in the moment fully, you know, paying attention. Um, my old Buddhist teacher, Chukim Trungpa, called it extroverted meditation. And it really all it was is he was just talking about sitting, um, paying attention to the breath, perhaps gently labeling thoughts when you, as I mentioned earlier, recognize that you've been off in your never-never land of your head somewhere, and just coming back to using the breath as an anchor to come back to the present. But when you're present, you're not ruled by this discursive mind, this discursive thinking mind. And again, that's a core teaching of Buddhism, that the discursive thinking mind is our primary, is, yes, it's our primary strategy for how we avoid opening up to reality, you know, surrendering to reality, to the unconditioned reality that is way beyond, that is uh, way beyond the ego or the individual self. So, so the true practice is not self-absorbed at all. And cannabis, uh, again, because it's non-judgmental in that sense, it's a non-specific amplifier, uh, it will amplify wherever you're going. So if you're going into your head, um, you can take your ideas too seriously. Um, and, the, you know, you mentioned paranoia earlier, mm-hmm. right? Um, you know, it, it, can exa- you, you, it shines a light on... Um, and seems to intensify uh, whatever you're thinking about. And so if you're thinking negative thoughts or fearful thoughts, it can, it can exaggerate those too. Right. And I know a guy, I wish that this fellow would try sitting down in one of our cannabis ceremonies with us uh, because I, I could almost 99% sure bet that he would have a radically different understanding of cannabis. He hasn't liked it for his whole adult life, basically, and he's now in his 60s, um, because when he was around about 20, he used to go to, um, he and his friends, they had some kind of a cottage or something or the, the, where they, I don't know if the cottage was on this little island or if they would just swim out to this island. And uh, so he swam out to this island one time, 
and uh, he, they, I guess they smoked some cannabis while they were out there, and he got afraid of coming back, um, which had never happened before. Um, and so he, he made an, a negative association about what cannabis does. And I thought, I always thought that was, when he told me that, I always thought that was really interesting because um, it, 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 makes, it potentially makes you more vulnerable, um, uh, more sensitive. But that's where the channeling, where the, inten- the intention uh, comes in, you know. Like what he was doing in that situation was he was buying into a thought, you know, which was exaggerated in that situation. But if he could have gotten out of his head and let go of that thought and just trusted his body. I mean, personally, I've always loved to dance, just kind of hippie, you know, free form, you know, just move stuff, right? Um, and um, and when I smoke cannabis, I, I I get into it more. I dance better. I loosen up more mm-hmm. um, because it's just the body, you know. I mean, if you're in your head, that's a totally different thing. But if you trust your body, if you trust the moment, um, cannabis can help you with that because of its non-specific amplifying capability. Um, so, as far as your friend uh, or this friend or whoever he is, um, and the self-absorbed kind of quality, I think a lot of that has to do with um, not really knowing how to work with the plant uh, properly. You know, um, and getting into yourself rather than getting out of yourself. Yeah. Yeah. I'm actually sweeter when I'm when I'm high. I, I don't get high all the time. I, I I try to keep it down to about twice a week, um, and I might even do it less often than that. Except that uh, um, usually my friend comes over on the weekend and we play music, um, and you know we always use the plant for for those sessions. And I, I like to have one other time during the week when I'm just alone with it and I'm just meditating and allowing thoughts to come and go and you know, maybe getting some ideas for some writing I'm doing and that sort of thing, but doing it more. I'll often even start and end it like a meditation session where I have a little small Tibetan gong thing that I'll just hit three times and say a prayer or something and then uh, sit in silence. Sometimes I'll sit more or less in silence. I mean, thoughts come up, of course. Um, They come and they go. Um, uh, And sometimes I'll just do that for the whole evening, for two, two hours, two, three hours. And other times I'll just make a point of sitting uh, in the, using the meditation technique of just paying attention to the breath, letting go of thoughts for maybe 20 minutes or so, and then I'll get into um, you know jotting down some ideas or maybe pick up my guitar and play a little or listen to some music or something. Um, but uh, uh, when I go up to the bedroom at the end of the evening on those evenings and my wife's in bed reading or something like that, um, she finds me and I find myself um, more tender and more gentle and sweeter um, than I am the rest of the time. So, uh, you know, it, it really depends on your relationship with it. In fact, that's probably a good way to think about the whole thing altogether is it's not, cannabis is not an it. It's not an objective thing. It's not like um, ibuprofen where you take it and you know pretty for sure it's going to mm-hmm. bust your headache or you know, loosen up that tight neck a little. Um, it's 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 a thing in a sense, right? It's a physical uh, chemical medicine. Cannabis is a spirit in a sense. It's a and and what's most important is the relationship rather than you know you're taking this thing. 
Mm-hmm. You're entering into a relationship mm-hmm. with this plant. Can, can, Kathleen Harrison talks about that beautifully in her chapter, that you know, you're uh, opening yourself up to an honored friend, to a revered uh, kind of spirit, if you will. Yeah. You reminded me, uh, uh, I'd like your, uh, your view on whether, um, do you think there's a difference in the relationship of the plant with women and with men? I seem to, I seem to notice maybe mm-hmm. that men are more attracted to her, but I'm not sure about that at all. I'm just, hmm. you know, I've never actually thought about that. To be honest, um, I, I certainly know it's. I, you know, I'm going to have to pay more attention to that uh, with people that I know and so on. I, I just uh, off the top of my head, it's not at all clear to me that uh, more women or more men uh, that I know um, are attracted to the plant than women. Perhaps, and this is really a guess, um, perhaps men are less connected to their emotions in general than women are and um, have more difficulty with that, more difficulty expressing their emotions, less connected to the yin quality. So maybe men are looking for that, you know, to correct that balance. Or maybe men are also, you know, a lot of men are also using it to escape. Um, I certainly know people personally that, that use the plant and have used the plant that way, and that I would say this plant is not healthy for you to be doing mm-hmm. that the way that you're doing it, you know. It's taking, like you said about that friend, it's taking you away. It's not bringing you in, you know. Um, and again, that's partly frequency of use, but it's a lot to do with intention and how you use it and the discipline or lack thereof, you know. Um, the only guess, and it's another just wild guess about uh, if there's any truth to what you're uh, suggesting there, um, that I could think of is that, again, it's a little bit like what I just said, I think that uh, perhaps women are already on average uh, more connected to the yin qualities that uh, cannabis potentially elicits in people and maybe don't need it as much that way or aren't attracted to it for the same reasons. Uh, My wife is not a cannabis user, um, uh, and, you know, she's a very earthy person, um, very connected to her emotions, very connected to the earth. She loves gardening. She's an artist, you know, things like that. Um, and uh, she's not interested in cannabis. Mm-hmm. Um, she tries it like once a year, you know, sort of thing. Has like a what I call a lady puff, you know, sort of a delicate, you know, one, and doesn't get really high off it, and, and likes that. But she's not really uh, drawn to do it again, particularly, you know. So um, I don't know. What do you think? I, I feel I've, I I think I've seen that often in couples, where. Uh, mm-hmm where the man seems to be more interested in being in relationship to the plant uh, than the woman in the in the couple. But, but they are, I mean, I'm in, interested. Yeah. Well, people should read <laughs> Kathleen Harrison's uh, chapter in the book on that because she has some very interesting things to say about that issue, and I wouldn't even... You know, without going in and actually looking at it right now, I wouldn't even want to try to interpret. But um, she specifically talks about men in in particular more than women in that regard. So maybe, yeah, you really are onto something there, Joanna, because um, she talks about how 
she knows younger men who, uh, I think the way she puts it, they, they don't want to come back out of the what feels to them as this mm-hmm. sort of safe place that mm-hmm. they've uh, discovered with this plant, you mm-hmm. know. Um, and that they become, I think in her way of talking about it, is that they can become more wedded to the plant than to the people around them, you know. And, yeah, so that's actually one of the themes in the book is the, that comes up here and there from different contributors is, you know, there are cautions to be aware of in using this plant. It's Again, it's a relationship. It's not like you know, put on a suit and it's on, suddenly you're going to be all shiny and go to the ball. Um, it's, it's really uh, a nonspecific amplifier in that sense and how you relate to it, you know. How do you think uh, cannabis should be regulated as we move forward? Well, uh, you know that we're about to have a full legalization for adults in Canada. Did you know that? Wow. Yeah. The uh, Oh, you didn't know? Well, I didn't sort of know. I uh, didn't realize that it was okay. that, uh, that it was that opened up. It, well, it will be. The... Uh, uh, it was a promise from our new prime minister when when he was campaigning um, a year ago, uh, roughly, um, a little over a year ago. Um, uh, they appear to be following through on it. They appointed a very sophisticated task force, which was very thorough and talked to people from all different uh, uh, aspects uh, of work with cannabis um, and uh, looked at what was happening in Colorado and Washington in particular, which because both those states have had the legal uh, state at the state level, of course, um, for you know several years now, particularly Colorado, um, and uh, they came up with their final report uh, just like two weeks ago. The the government doesn't isn't you know required to follow all their recommendations, but they're pretty um, sophisticated people. Uh, the head of the task force is a woman named Anne McClellan, who is a former government minister uh, mm-hmm. from the, that party, from the Liberal Party. So, you know, these are respected people that have put this uh, together. The the, um, the head of, well, I guess, I thought he was kind of the head of the committee too, but I guess she's the head of the head, but the, um, the, the kind of head of, that was putting this committee together was a guy named Bill Blair, who's former chief of police in Toronto. So it's not like a bunch of flakes or hippies or something, uh-huh. yeah. you know, put this task force together. Very serious, uh, mainstream kind of people um, involved in medical professions and legal professions and so on. And so um, I was actually, and a lot of other people were, uh, we were all a little concerned about how they were going to come out on this because their language was sort of coming from the point of view of harm reduction, you know, uh, that the the Prime Minister himself, the two main things that he would say would be, well, we want to get it out of the hands of criminals and we want to protect our children. And that's great, of course. That's really, really important. But what's missing there is, uh, and I don't expect it to be different coming from the Prime Minister of the country, but what's missing there is um, an acknowledgement of the benefits of the plant. That it's not just about Mm -hmm. limiting harm, but it's also about um, making this plant available in the ways that it can benefit people. So we were a little concerned that they'd be overcautious about it, but it turns out that if they follow through on the, result, the, the recommendations of the task report, uh, task force, is actually going to be pretty good. Um, they're 
they're going to uh, one concern is um, this is all answering your question if it may yeah, seem randomly yeah. but uh, um, uh, one concern that many of us have is we don't want it to be overly corporatized we don't want it to be in the control right. of really large businesses um, um, are dominated by large businesses and it looks like they're going to be doing things to make it available uh, to be uh, grown. Well, there are there already we already have legal medical marijuana nationally in Canada, and there are something like thirty light. They call them LPs, licensed producers. They're already there, but apparently they're going to expand that and allow other people to grow it, produce it. Um, uh, they're probably going to allow, and I think this is an answer to your question. I think personally, this is really important. It needs to be allowed to be uh, sold by small businesses, um, independent as much as possible. I have no problem with, uh, you know, um, various kinds of um, restrictions and uh, um, licensing, uh, you know, that sort of thing, um, uh, inspection to make sure that the products are, you know, good and, uh, and so on. But we already have in Vancouver, I mean, Vancouver is kind of, well, it's quite different from any other city in Canada in the sense that the, the local police department or the city apparently made a decision years ago, several years ago, just to leave the dispensaries alone, even though they're not legal. So we have about 100 dispensaries yes. already in Vancouver that are operating in this gray area. They're now licensed by the city, even though it's still illegal federally. But the police leave them alone. And the best of those, and I can see, you know, weeding out, those that are not responsible or that don't know their product, but the best of those, and I have personal relationships with a couple of them, they know their product really well. And cannabis is a product that you should know well if you're going to dispense it. Um, there are so many different varieties. There's so many different strains. There are high CBD strains, you know, and CBD has got this, this developing, uh, you know, um, understanding uh, for a lot of medical benefits and CBD in itself doesn't get you high. So there are, there are kinds of strains that really don't have a lot of the high involved and that have a lot of really good medical benefits to them um, uh, without you know, going into a long thing mm -hmm. uh, about it. Uh, there are a lot of different uh, ways to uh, you know, sell this plant to people or you know, give it to people. And, um, and so the people that they're selling it um, should know that. They should be knowledgeable. It's almost, I, I could almost see it some way. It wouldn't, it wouldn't, I wouldn't object personally. I don't know what other people think, but if there were, you actually had to pass a licensing course or something like a, like a pharmacist does, you know, maybe not as you know, severe or taking as long. To dispense it. it. You know, show that, to dispense it. Pardon? To dispense it. Yeah, that, yeah so that, you know, that it's clear that you know the plant well. You know what you're doing. One of the proposals, the Ontario provincial government wanted to put it in the liquor stores, and a lot of us were just going, no, no, don't, please don't do that. Right. You know, um, first of all, I don't, a lot of us just symbolically don't like the association with liquor, don't want it in the same place. Um, but also, it sort of suggests, you know, you're just treating it as a consumer product, like like booze, you know. And it's it's not that, really. It's much more sophisticated than that. Um, and it's potential. It's a medicine, and it's a spiritual medicine. It's a physical, physical medicine, and it's an emotional, mental, spiritual medicine. Um, and, and, and the more expertise, the, the better. 
So yes, as far as legal rollout, um, I would say, oh, and another thing that, that I was really hoping for, because I want to grow a plant myself, and my wife won't let me while it's illegal, but when it becomes legal, she'll have a hard time saying no, is they rec- they're recommending that everyone be allowed to grow up to four plants, as long as they're not tall and they're not, you know, at risk of, you know, kids from the neighborhood getting at them or whatever, they probably mostly want you to grow them indoors, maybe, I don't know, or in a greenhouse or something, but they're, they're supposed to be under uh, uh, three feet high, I think, so I guess that means more leaning toward an indica kind of type of plant, because the sativas tend to grow long and thin, but um, allowing people to grow their own, to me, is great, because for one thing, um, it, it's, it's, it's a mitigation against uh, corporate control, you know, powerful interests that people can grow their own. It's, yeah. it's really great. Um, uh, and, um, and it's going to save a lot of people a lot of money because a lot of people that need the, can- the plant uh, uh, for their health, um, for their, um, you know, disease or condition, uh, they, they have to go through a lot of it, and they can't afford to be paying $10, $12 a gram for it. Um, they need to be able to grow it. In, in the, if you have a medical license in Canada, there are, I don't know, 30,000 or so of those around right now, you are allowed to grow your own. Uh-huh. Um, uh, but for the general legal uh, scenario that we're coming into, uh, the recommendation is going to be that anyone's going to be able to grow it, and it's going to make a big difference for affordability for people. Thank you. Thank you so much. Does that more or less answer the question about my... About Canada, yes. Legal, yes. Legal rollout. Well, yes. no, it should be that way everywhere, really, you know. Um, it should be allowed to be run by small businesses. Um, uh, there should be good inspection. Yeah. Yes. Um, because, well, actually, uh, I don't know, I'm not quite sure what's happening in the States, but there was a really interesting um, expose done by the, our national newspaper, the Globe and Mail, um, where they went to something like, I don't know, 13 or 17 different uh, dispensary outlets in Toronto, and they uh, got samples of the product, and they took them and had them tested, and uh, they found a lot of problems with the test. With They found that there were, you know, certain kinds of molds and things mm-hmm. that should not be in there. Um, they found that the THC, quant, uh, uh, the claimed uh, percentage of THC was not true with a lot of them. So I definitely support um, the idea of having good control where, you you know, you're going to have periodic inspections and you have to prove that if you say there's 20% THC or 10% or whatever, that's what's in there. And same with CBD and there are other chemicals in the plant that are going to become more and more a part of the discussion as well. Um, So that and, you know, that they're only allowing um, uh, pesticides that are, you know, proven to be harm, essentially harmless, and, the, and hopefully that a lot of the growing would be done organically anyway, that kind of thing, and that there's ways to prove that. You know, we have national certification for organic produce in this country, so it should be the same for cannabis, I think, too. So, yeah, small growers, uh, as much as possible, um, uh, not controlled by a few giant players, uh, small dispensaries, um, growing your own, and good inspection. I think those are perhaps the main keys. Thank you so much, Stephen, for being with us today. And uh, again, the book is Cannabis and Spirituality, which is a beautiful title because 
It sounds like those two things go really well together. If used wisely, yes, indeed, yeah. Well, and thank you, Joanna. Thank you.